You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2009. Today's episode is titled, Can a Pastor Help You Succeed at Work? When Henry Ford was building his automobile empire, he hired a lot of people and in the process learned more than he wanted to about the nature of people. In his own words, all he wanted to do was hire a pair of hands. Instead, he got the whole person. Their view of God, their values, their agendas, and more. If you are called to the workplace, this means that you need pastors and teachers who can equip you with God's rules for the workplace. Spiritual leaders also should help you discern and fulfill the business plan of your organization. Therefore, to enjoy success in the physical world, we must have a solid spiritual foundation in our lives, which comes through godly spiritual leaders who not only watch over our souls, but also help us fulfill the purposes of God in our work lives. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message, Can a Pastor Help a Businessman to Succeed? Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Executive Forum. We're delighted that all of you are here, and I hope you have a very blessed time of fellowship, some wonderful food, and a challenging thought. That's really the objective of the Executive Forum, is to is to challenge you in the context of a, a fun environment. Uh, before we really get into things, I want to ask you a question. Where did you learn what you know about the workplace? Anybody, where did you learn what you know about the workplace? At work. At work. Maybe you learned it from a parent. Is that possible? You know, a, a friend, or just being there, OJT, on-the-job training. Okay. Uh, would you would you all agree that the workplace does not generally embrace biblical principles? Is that a fair statement? Now, the reality is that the only thing that works in, in God's universe are God's principles, so by virtue of just pure pragmatism, the workplace has discovered some things that work. For example... Uh, if you're a sales, how many people are salespeople here? Okay, have you noticed that in selling you have to treat people nicely? You notice that? The golden rule is a really nice tool if you're going to be selling. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Treat them nicely with respect and dignity. And that facilitates selling. So there's a biblical principle at work that the, that the world is largely embraced without realizing it's a biblical principle. But apart from that reality... You know, the workplace generally rejects biblical principles. So, if we have learned basically from the world, and the world is not lined up with Scripture, and if you want to be lined up with Scripture, what does that say you need to do? You better start studying work from a biblical perspective. Because you're not, you can't assume that you're going to get a lot of that from, from the workplace. So you've got to go out there proactively, intentionally, seek to understand God's principles of, of workplace by going to the Word of God and looking, looking in the Word of God for that truth. All right, let's talk about a gentleman by the name of Hoyt. Hoyt was born, born in 1889. He was born in Leavenworth, Kansas, to a very poor family. And his father uh, was a farmer. Hoyt went through fourth grade with his education. He dropped out and became an apprentice for a blacksmith. And in those days, the blacksmiths did everything. I think they probably did dental work. They did virtually everything. Well, Hoyt was a very industrious young man. He was an avid reader, even though he dropped out of school. So he was always learning and growing. And uh, one of the things he was noticing is the farmers and the merchants and the various people that would bring... Uh, things to the blacksmith to be sharpened, 
uh, he noticed they had came back frequently. A, har- a farmer might bring a, a sickle in once a week to be sharpened. Or he might bring in a machete or a, a, a plow or whatever he, he had. A butcher might bring in a knife. And he just noticed, you know, these guys come in all the time for me to sharpen these blades. He said, there's got to be a better way to hold the edge. So he began to experiment with how can I get this, these, these cutting instruments to hold their edge better. And so he experimented and experimented, and finally he developed a technique. It's a very special technique. He was able to take a torch, and uh, he, he very uniformly would heat the surface. Now, he had to be very careful. He had experimented a lot to figure out you know, how far away to hold the torch, how, how hot the torch should be, how fast to move his hand, how long to do this, and what color the, 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 the metal would turn. And he noticed that when the metal would turn a uniform gray along the cutting edge, and then it would turn red almost all at once, he grabbed it and dumped it into a, a, a little bucket of oil immediately. And when he did that, it produced a very hard edge that would, that would uh, stay basically in a good cutting shape for a long period of time. So he, he, he developed a, a technique here to make any kind of cutting instrument. And he was very pleased with this. This really began to bless his customers. Everybody was thrilled because now instead of coming in every week to have your plow sharpened, you could come in once a month or once every three months because the instruments would just last so much longer. So a great time in his life. Well, soon he got married and he had a, he had a son. His first son went by the name of Al in 1910. And uh, Hoyt kind of got distracted with uh, the glamour of the West Coast. Uh, so he decided to move to Seattle. And it was out in Seattle that he met his wife, Daisy, who happened to be the daughter of a boat captain. So he got involved somewhat in the boating business for a while. Then he got involved in the timber business. And he, he knocked around doing various things. And finally, in the 1930s, he wound up in Idaho. And by then, he had had a very serious experience with the Lord. So he was really walking with God at a new level. And so when he joined this church, soon the pastor of the church resigned and left town. And the, the members of the church looked to Hoyt and said, Hoyt, why don't you pastor the church? And Hoyt said, well, okay, I can do that. So he began to pastor this little church. The early 1940s brought World War II to reality for the United States. The United States Army and the military was not prepared for World War II. They didn't have the, the soldiers in place, and they didn't have the arms in place to fight this war. So they, they issued a call. The call was, we need people, and we need equipment. Now, most of you know that they put the call out for people, but what you don't, probably don't know is they put out a call for equipment. Because they didn't have the guns, they didn't have the machetes, they didn't have the knives, the pistols, you know, the packs, the shoes, hardly anything. So they were having to build up everything, equipment as well as people, to, build, to, to fund this uh, war effort. So uh, Hoyt at that time, he had not done any blacksmith work for nearly 30 years. Nearly 30 years. He's, he's 50 years old now. And he's remembering those days back in Kansas where he developed that technique to make those wonderful, sharp cutting, cutting uh, edges. So he thought, you know, I can make a contribution. And at that time, being a pastor, he had this mindset that the Japanese were pagans. And he wanted to fight the pagans. Now, he may not have been totally right in his mindset. But anyway, he, he wanted to make a contribution. So what he did... You see, he had a basement in this building where the church met. 
Now, you notice I didn't call it a church building? The church met in the building. Okay, they, so they met in this, he, this basement was vacant. So what he did is he set up a blacksmith shop in the basement. And he began to make knives. All these knives for the soldiers. And he began to pass them out. There was a, a, a military base nearby. And he began to send them over to the base. Just fast as he could make them, he'd send them over there. And pretty soon he got the reputation of producing really good knives. Because he was using that technique that he had developed back 30 years before. Everybody realized this, this knife holds its edge. It doesn't get as dull as everybody else's knives. This thing is really good. It stays sharp a long time. So they, the demand for his knives really increased. Well, the war effort went along fine, and, and then he, uh, it stopped. And so the demand for his knives didn't totally go away, but they obviously reduced. At that time, I think, and this is not totally clear from the literature that I've read, that Hoyt began to experience some stomach pain. And there was something in Hoyt that told him that his life was coming to an end. And he began to really examine what it is that God wants me to do. And as he reflected on that, he realized that God had given him this incredible revelation on how to make knives, how to make them so they really would uh, hold their edge a long time, and how to really make, how to bless people with these incredible cutting edges. So he began to say, what do, what do I need to do here? I've got to pass this on some way, somehow. Now, he had a son by the name of Al. Al was born in 1910. And Al had uh, grown up pretty much uh, like his father. He kind of knocked around, did this, that, and the other, and really hadn't had a whole lot of success in life. In the 1930s, after Al had tried his hand at being in the Navy and in the Coast Guard, and he tried the timber business and various things like that, he wound up uh, working for a meat processing plant. And in this meat processing plant, one night he was cleaning a hamburger grinder, and he got his left hand caught in the grinder. And it cut his left hand from his thumb all the way to his pinky finger. Right there, across like that. Of course, it wasn't a clean cut. It was a very ragged cut. And, you know, he's just got, his fingers are just kind of dangling. Well, they rush him to the hospital. Some way or another, in the process of all this happening, he was able to communicate with his wife and the prayer team at his church. And they, they began to pray for, for him. And he knew that they were praying for him. And... Al had an incredible faith in the supernatural power of God. So as he's laying there at the hospital, they're about to put him under, and he hears the doctor say, well, this will be easy. The only thing that's holding it on is just a little bit of skin, so we'll just cut that, and we'll just amputate it. And, and Al says, doctor, please don't do that. Please do your best to put it back together, and God will do the rest. I've got my wife and the intercessors at my church are praying for me, and they're praying for you. And so the doctor, being a very gracious man, decided to comply. Four hours later, Al wakes up. The doctor's by his side. I guess this was back in the days when doctors really kind of tended to patients. They don't do that anymore. But the doctor's by his side. He said, Al, I did the best I could. But your hand was just a total mess. He says, you don't have any, he called them hinges. Okay? You don't have any hinges, meaning you know, you're not going to be able to bend your hand. It's just, I got the stuff back in there, but you know, it's just a mess. It's not put in there properly, and things aren't connected properly. You're not going to be able to use the hand. Furthermore, there's all this hamburger meat in there, and I couldn't get it out. There was no way to get it all out. 
says it's going to be it's going to get infected and we're going to have to cut it off eventually Al but I tried to accommodate your wishes Al said thank you very much we will keep praying a week later Al is in his room he hears a, a conversation going on outside the conversation is I can't believe it there's no infection in that hand that hand ought to be just full of infection but there's not, a, not an ounce of infection anywhere in that hand I can't believe it this is the doctor talking to other medical people well within a few months guess what Al's hand began to move six months later Al has virtually full use of his hand with the exception of one finger now that's very important to this story because Hoyt the father wanted to pass on to his son the trade of making these knife blades and Al could not do that if, Hoyt, if Al didn't have two good hands because you've got to work a grinder you know making a knife blade it takes two hands you can't do it one-handed now that's a very important part of the story so into World War II Hoyt is beginning to feel like the need to pass things on to his son his son recovered from the industrial accident and after that he went to work as a bus driver in, in the city of San Diego had a good job gained some seniority pretty much had his choice of routes had good pay benefits everything's pretty cool so he's thinking hey I got I got the life of Riley here and he gets a call from dad he says his dad says Al um, I want to move down to San Diego and I want to pass on to you everything that I know about making knives and Al says what I don't know anything about making knives Hoy says I will teach you I don't want to be taught dad Al I need to do this you need to let me apprentice you and teach you this this trade it took several weeks of conversation and finally Al capitulated although I think he thought he was crazy leaving a, a wonderful job with nice pay and benefits and nice seniority to go and now work with his dad in a startup business it was something he knew nothing about but he decided to do it for two years he apprenticed under his dad at the end of two years his dad became very ill and he, shortly thereafter he died during this time Al barely learned the business he barely got to where he could do it like his dad could do it he barely knew you know, how to go out and generate business and now he's by himself with his startup business and his dad is gone for 13 years he struggles sharpening anything they sharpened lawnmower blades butcher blades plows sickles saws anything that came along they were just trying to survive they didn't have any products they just had a a way to make cutting edges better than anybody else that's all they had and so they struggled and struggled and it's 1960 and his pastor now is looking at Al and say Al you're killing yourself this isn't going to work so I've got a discussion question for you now you're going to put yourself in the in the role of Al's pastor and you're looking at Al and you've got to decide what you're going to do to help Al. So let me just read to you real quickly the, the setup here. In 1947, Al was working as a bus driver in San Diego. He thought that he was satisfied with his life, but his father believed that God had something else for his son. Because of his father's strong encouragement, Al joined him in a new business venture. 
Al apprenticed under his father for a year before his father unexpectedly died. Now left to run the nascent business alone, Al struggled just to keep the business going. He worked arduously for 13 years, but could not seem to get any significant traction. An observer to all of this was Al's pastor, who could see that Al was killing himself. Finally, the pastor felt compelled to do something. The action of the pastor transformed Al and enabled him to build one of the most successful companies of the 20th century. What did the pastor do? That is your question. What this pastor did, his name is Robert Wilson, uh, what Pastor Wilson did was first ask himself the question, what is Al called to do? Good question, isn't it? In fact, if any, any of y'all that have you know, been involved with any, any consulting that I've done where you've had difficulty, one of the first questions that I ask you is, are you called to do this thing that you're doing? Is that right? Yeah. And one of the first things I'm going to ask you? Okay, because... Why would I support you in doing something you're not called to do? Why would you support anybody doing something they're not called to do? Because if you support somebody doing something they're not called to do, you're going against the purposes of God. Does anybody want to do that? I don't want to do that. I don't think there's going to be blessing or favor there. There's not going to be fruit there. I want to line up with what God is doing. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's what I want to do. Do you want to do that? Well, Pastor Wilson wanted to do that too. He wanted to see what the Father was doing. So he asked the question, are you called to do this? And as he looked at the situation, the history, all that had happened, including the hand being miraculously healed, through the apprenticing of the Father, through hearing, he heard the words of Al's father, Hoyt, when Hoyt was nearly dead and he saw that his son pretty well understood the process that God had given him. He said, now my life is complete. Isn't that nice to be able to say that? At the end of your life, say, okay, I've done what I've been put here to do. And so Pastor Wilson saw that, so he knew. He knew there was a call of God on Al's life that involved this company and this technology of making sharp instruments. Now the next thing that happened is as Al's pastor had a different gospel than, than most Christians have today. The gospel that most of us have today is a gospel that I call a dualistic gospel. It's a gospel that says God is largely uh, concerned about your soul. Being sure that you get a ticket to heaven. That's mainly what the work of Christ is about. And that's the, the common notion of what the gospel is. That was not Pastor Wilson's perspective. Pastor Wilson had what I call a holistic perspective on the gospel. And the holistic perspective on the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to change everything. He came to touch your life in every way. To change your eternal destiny, yes. To change the way you live your life, the way you conduct your marriage, the way you live in business, the way you go to church, the way you function in your community, to change everything. You might call that a kingdom perspective today. Well, that was his perspective, that God valued everything. And so for him, kingdom work involved everything. 
So he had no problem at all looking at Al and saying, God has called you to the kingdom work of working with these cutting instruments. I see the call of God on you. So what the pastor did was he began to pick up the phone and he starts calling his friends. He says, I've got this, this man under my care, this man I'm discipling, and he's got some great technology. He just needs a little business help and he needs some finances here to help him move forward. So the pastor began to help Al develop a business plan. You ever heard of a pastor doing that? <laughs> help Al develop a business plan of sitting out and laying out what is it we need to do to take this company and move it into a profitable venture. But he didn't only do that. He did something else probably almost no pastor has ever done that, frankly, I don't know of any other pastor that's done this. He put his money where his mouth is. He wrote a check. He became a stockholder in this new company based on the business plan that he helped Al develop. And he recruited other people in the church, and they wrote checks. And pretty soon, this business plan was executed, and part of that business plan was that Al had to develop a product line of knives. And you know those knives today as buck knives. Starting out, six six basic products and Al and Ida Buck with the support of the pastor and many of the church members not just verbally they wrote checks investing in the call of God in Al's life you know we write checks to send missionaries overseas which that's great do you write checks to send people into their calling in the workplace when you see somebody that's called to do something are you willing to step up and invest in them you know, how many of you have invested in the stock market in recent years? Am I the only one that has? How many of you lost a lot of money in the stock market? Spades. In fact, as I have been really assessing this whole investment scenario now for some time, I'm coming to the conclusion that I'm investing in the wrong things. I need to be investing in disciples of Jesus Christ who are doing what they're called to do. That's what I need to be investing in. Invest my time, my talent, and my money, my treasure, into those people doing the call of God. Well, so Al begins to execute the business plan that this pastor and his friends have put, put together. He uses their capital. They've been, they become investors in the company. And he and Ida, Ida was his wife, got in their, their car, and they literally went all the way across the United States with their sample bag of knives and they called on 250 sporting goods stores in about three months. 40% of those stores bought the knives. And in the process of calling on those stores, they were able to explain the value proposition. At a time when, when fishing knives and hunting knives were going for $2, Al was selling knives for $20. And how did he do it? Because he delivered an outstanding value proposition. He built great relationships with his with his uh, people that were selling, his retailers, and he, he stood behind his work and it was a superior product. You can get a superior price for a superior product. Particularly when you have, you're lining up with what God has called you to do. 
So what, what enabled all of this happened, what enabled you know, Buck to be such a success story, is three key things that we need to take away today. And I have a takeaway card for each of you, so I encourage you to, to grab these on your way out. But I just want to go through these three things with you real quickly. The first thing is you have got to have a holistic gospel. If you have a dualistic gospel that says God is only interested in your soul, then you are truncating the purposes of God in your life. You will not see what God wants to do with you in wherever he's assigned you, wherever that may be. So you have to have a holistic gospel. And part of that holistic gospel is you need to be willing to invest in the disciples of Jesus Christ. They're doing what they're called to do. That's step one. Step two is you need to have faith in the healing power of God. In 1991, on Easter Sunday, Al Buck went to be with the Lord. His family gathered to memorialize his life. And as they began to reflect on all that had happened since, 19, since the 1930s when he nearly lost his hand to 1991, they had a startling revelation. It's one of these things that just, just almost takes your breath away. They realized, had it not been for Al's faith in the supernatural power of God, he would not have spoken to that surgeon and said, please don't cut my hand off. Please reattach it. That was an act of faith. The surgeon is ready to go. I mean, it's almost all severed anyway. It's real easy. Just a little, a little cut here and it's all gone. It's over. But there's something in Al, and he didn't even know the full detail, something in Al said, I need that hand. He could not have made those knives without both hands. And the family realized that. They realized that buck knives would never have existed had buck had not had faith in the supernatural power of God. So trust God to do things that we can't do. To do things that are beyond our wildest expectations. When you feel a conviction of God about something, trust God. Allow Him to be supernatural. The third thing is there was an incredible commitment to biblical philosophy, values, and principles in this company. I want to read to you uh, what Charles Buck wrote. Charles Buck is the son of Al Buck. I think he may still be the president of Buck Knives. He's the grandson of Hoyt Buck. This is what he wrote. This company was built on solid, old-fashioned values. We made commitments to quality, reliability, and integrity, and the fulfillment of those commitments can still be found in every product we make. We believe if you do the right things and do them well, you will succeed. The right things are the things that line up with God. When you do those things and you do them well, you will succeed because God's purposes will be advanced no matter what those purposes may be. Now, I just want to relate one other quick story about Buck Knives. I think it has application today. In 1963, Buck Knives had, uh, was about three years in executing the business plan that, uh, that Pastor Wilson had helped Al Buck develop. And they were struggling because the knife business was seasonal. Basically, most knives were sold uh, between roughly September and December each year, either for hunting season or for gifts at Christmas. So from January through September, 
their business was very light. So what would happen is they'd make money the end of the year, and then they would spend the money surviving until you know the next fall. And this just you know wasn't working. They were not able to really move forward. They were stuck. And so Al decided to do something that most business people don't do. He decided to pray. And he began to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, what do I do? I've got this seasonal business. This cash flow problem is continuing to plague me. I can't seem to get past this problem. You know, we've gone from being a nearly on the verge of bankruptcy to a business that now has got a product line and we've got a reputation, we've got dealers and, you know, we've got investors and we've got, we've got some cash flow. We've got a great, great product here, but I've got to break through. I've got to get past this rut I'm in. So he's praying and asking the Lord. And in the process of that prayer, a name came to him. It's a name of a man who was an owner of a sporting goods store in San Diego. And that particular man uh, knew Al, and Al knew him, but they weren't very close. So he went to see the guy, and he just laid out his situation. And the guy said, look, I'm on the board at the bank. Let's go down to the bank and meet the president. So they go down to the bank meet the president. Now this, this president of the bank, I don't know anything about him, but, but he sounded like a very godly man. Because he sat down with, with Al and looked at his, his game plan and very astutely said, it's very simple, Al. You need to raise some more capital. You need to raise about $36,000, and then I will, I will finance your receivables, and then you will have the money to build up your inventory so when the fall comes, you can really, you can really sell your products well. Well, that was, that was the key ingredient that he needed to bridge a serious cash flow problem, a serious block in his business at that time, and that launched the company on to its next, next level of growth. But again, the key was a praying man, a man of faith, a man who was looking to God to guide and direct the company. That's the way we build great organizations. That's the way you fulfill your destiny in Christ. And that's what we should be doing as church leaders for everybody under our care is looking for the call of God in them and helping them map out the plan and then funding them to go do it. Now, wouldn't that be a different church if we did that? You're also stunned you can't handle that? <laughs> now, I, I, that would, to me would be a different church. Lord, give us the grace to see holistically the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming everything in our lives so that we can do your will and we can say at the end of our lives Father we've completed the work you've given us to do and then we will hear well done well Father we thank you for this time we thank you for the story of the Buck family a story of faith a story of trust we thank you for the story of Pastor Robert Wilson a man who could see beyond who could see into the supernatural, who could see the destiny and purposes that you have for Al Buck, and was willing to invest time, talent, and treasure in helping this man do what you put him here to do. Thank you for that leadership and that example. Make us leaders today, businessmen and church leaders today that can follow this example and walk out the reality of our calling. So Lord, give us grace to do that and give us grace to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen.